Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern, Dr. Andrew Mullally, and I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests are going to be discussing relevant health-related topics and do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, Andrew, will be someone from far, far away and an expert in so many different things. He's seated to my right, Dr. Tom McGovern. Yes, I'm excited to talk to Tom, especially being Skin Cancer Awareness Month. But first, uh, Tom's actually brought us an article to kind of set the table for our discussion. Well, we've got a, a couple of things that have been in the news. One thing that's been in the news recently are coral reefs and sunscreen. And there is some evidence that at high concentrations, certain uh, components of sunscreen, certain chemicals may damage coral reefs. And of course, most coral reefs that are looked at are in very nice, warm, sunny areas of the world. Actually, there's not quite enough data yet to say whether or not we should be swimming around coral reefs with or without sunscreen. It's still an open question. Most likely, it rarely affects things, but if there's a concentration effect, like when we talk about mercury in seafood, right. if things are eaten by progressively you know, bigger and bigger fish, things might concentrate. So for right now, um, j- just stop snorkeling, and then you know, you'll be safe, and, and the coral reefs will be safe. Yeah, I think there's going to be some <laughs> tourism and stuff affected by that. It's kind of crazy. I, I, I can't guess. believe Tom has come out anti-snorkeling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, well, you can snorkel at night. Oh. Snorkeling at night is fine. Isn't that when the sharks come out? I've never been snorkeling at night to find out. Have you? <laughs> I, I don't know. But anyway, that, that is a thing. There is some evidence, but the jury's still out. Uh, there's also good ad- advances being made with all these medicines that end in the letters M-A-B, MAB. Yeah, that's a popular class of medicines, and it's really a relatively new class given the history of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I mean, they... They focus specifically on certain proteins that are wrong in a number of different cancers or autoimmune diseases. And there's a new one out called semiplamab, which you are not under any obligation to remember. But the good thing is that there are a number of patients with squamous cell cancer of the skin that has spread internally uh, that used to have almost no hope. And now with semiplamab, there are patients being cured and giving more years of life from a medication with far less side effects than chemotherapy drugs. See, I, I really like that because that whole class of medicine, you know, just for our listeners, those are monoclonal antibodies. So they are targeted medications that go in and fix one problem. Traditional chemotherapy, unfortunately, the way it works in general is it kills everything that's growing thinking that the cancer is growing faster than your normal healthy tissue, but that's why you have so many side effects. This would be a lot cleaner way to treat skin cancer. Isn't that idea interesting, though, in a, in a general sense? There's a cancer, so we're going to do something to your immune system that makes your own attack system attack the cancer and do so in a super precise way. Right. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's kind of metaphysical in a way when you think about we're charging up your body's own defenses to defend you better. That's radically different than, as you point out, Andrew, the idea that we're just going to flood the area with chemotherapy and hope that it doesn't kill you before it kills the cancer. It's like the difference between in warfare, carpet bombing versus being a sniper. Exactly. Yeah, I, I honestly think this is going to be a huge part of the future of medicine over the next 50 years. The trouble that I always run into is the price tag. I don't know if we have a price tag on this one yet. Uh, I don't know the price tag. I do know that a lot of these companies, to their credit, uh, do a lot of compassionate use which means they will give it to patients who cannot afford it. Yeah, that is very good. I mean, I guess on their end, they want to develop a good name for themselves and a good track record for the drugs in a number of people. Uh, But for whatever reason, the patients are benefiting uh, by this. And then something much more common than metastatic squamous cell carcinoma is uh, actinic keratosis. Actinic keratosis is a a precancer, and it's present in half of white people after the age of 40 who live in the United States. And you probably see it once in a while in your office on on patients. Oh, yeah. I I always tell people it's more of a win, not an if, if you're fair-skinned. Yes, especially if you've been out in the sun. And, you know, here in northern Indiana, people like to go to the lakes. There's a lot of farmers. But in the rest of the country, there's a lot more sunshine than there is uh, here in Indiana. And so people are victims to it. Well, there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, It was surprising to see a dermatology uh, study published in there, but it was looking at 
four different treatments for actinic keratosis. And, you know, the, why do people get these treated? Well, number one, you know, who wants to have all this uh, rough, gritty skin on your face and your head and your hands? Many people don't like it. The second thing is, every year, 1% of these turn into a squamous cell skin cancer. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a good reason to get rid of them. Well, there, there's a number of treatments, like if you've gone to a doctor before, a common treatment would be liquid nitrogen. We get people frostbite. 320 degrees below zero, freeze it. But if you've got a lot of them, that's a lot of marks, might leave a lot of um, scars. So there are several treatments which will treat a whole area. You know, uh, one of them is called FUDEX, 5-fluorouracil. It's a chemotherapy drug, like mm-hmm. we were just talking. Uh, but in this case, it doesn't attack your normal skin. It only attacks cells growing faster. So you, you look red and scabby for several weeks, but you get a great-looking result. Then there's a drug called imiquimod. Okay, this is how we were talking about turning on the body's own immune system. And that's exactly what this drug does. Uh, then there's something called photodynamic therapy or blue light therapy where a nurse will paint your face with a clear chemical, but the chemical is sensitive to blue light. And then after the chemical's been absorbed for an hour, preferentially in the cells growing faster, those gritty cells, you put a blue light on it for 1,000 seconds, just under 17 minutes, and it activates that chemical, kills those cells, and you turn red and peel for three to five days. Wow, that sounds pretty slick. I have, I have not seen that in action before. Oh, uh, we use that quite a bit. Uh, because patients are only red for three to five days instead of red for three to four weeks. Yeah, longer term with the creams. With the first two creams. And then there's uh, a newer cream out, uh, Inginol Mebutate, whatever that means. Uh, It has a brand name, but you only put it on for two or three days on a small area. And it's made by a plant, and it has some effects. So what this journal article reports is studying in a group of patients what happens if you randomize patients to receive one of those four treatments if on their forehead or cheeks they have a large area with all these precancers? And they did a really nice study where they, they took these like um, cellophane or plastics or saran wrap, put it over that part of the body, circled all the different precancers so that as patients came back each time, they could compare which ones had gone away and which oh, ones were still there. Neat. And so what they wanted to look at is what percentage of patients got rid of at least 75% of the spots they started with. And to those of us in dermatology, it was somewhat surprising findings in that when they got the results, there was virtually no overlap of what's called the confidence intervals. Oh, wow. Hmm. So that means when you do a study and you say, say 85% of people had success, well, there's always this interval called a confidence interval. It might be, in that case, 75 to 95%, which means we only had a small sample. But if it went out to the whole population, the true answer is probably someplace between 75 and 95%. So it's a statistical term that helps define how strong of data that study is. Correct. And this is that recurring theme we've had when we talk about fascinating studies. It's so tempting, especially in the lay public, to just go right to the bottom and see what the answer is. Right. But the answer may not be the answer. No, and a lot of times you'll have have something, on the other hand, that is statistically significant. There's a difference, but it might be a 2 or 3% difference in how patients do for a huge cost that really isn't worth it. I think the, the take-home for listeners can be, for any study, and we've said this before on, on the air, just because you hear there was a study that showed, fill in the blank, uh, hold on, don't sell the ships just yet, because the answer may lie in the details of how that study was made and designed, and maybe some of the flaws in some of their assumptions, right? Oh, yeah. You, I could find a study to prove almost anything. Or if you, if you had a job to create a study to prove something, unfortunately, you can manipulate data to do that. Well, the the results in this study were that uh, they had 624 patients split evenly into the four groups. The best medication treatment at getting rid of the precancers, statistically and clinically significant, was the first one, the chemotherapy cream, the Effudex, or is a brand name, 5-fluorouracil is the brand name. So, Tom, like you, I'm a surgeon. I like to cut things. Uh, And so our natural bias is to think, well, you cut it off. If you have a cancer, you cut it. That's what you do. But this would suggest that's not necessarily the case. Well, this was a treatment for a precancer at this point. But I will tell you that many times in my career, I have used this medication for shallow skin cancers, what are called either in situ 
or superficial squamous cell carcinoma in situ, meaning those cancers are confined to the top thin layer of mm. skin, the epidermis. And in some studies, they have a 90% cure rate. And they heal with virtually no scarring. Right. So if it were on me, I would treat those kind of cancers first with that cream. Interesting. Yeah, uh, and probably cosmetically a lot more pleasing. Huh? And I, I think so, yeah, especially on the face. I've got a question too, Tom. So at least the way I was taught, kind of the first line treatment, especially if it's isolated, was the liquid nitrogen. If someone has just a couple of these... That is the way. This study was mainly looking at field treatment. So some people have so I much see. broad area of sun damage that to freeze them all would be making mm. somebody polka-dotted for life with light-colored marks. So you wouldn't necessarily switch to the Effudex based on the study for a few lesions. Oh, no. Gotcha. But I can tell you I have used Effudex several thousand times in my career for patients' faces. Yeah. And I have to give them detailed instructions, tell them exactly what to expect to get them through. But they're uniformly appreciative of the results if they get through the pain to get there. So 75% of patients in this study were at least 75% clear. The second best treatment was the medicine that turns on your uh, own immune system, the imiquimod. Instead of 75% of people getting the improvement. 54% of people got the improvement with that one. But you're red just as long as you are with the with the first one, the 5-fluorouracil. Yeah, that's a big drop-off. Plus, it's more expensive. And then the blue light treatment, that was only 38% of patients were at least 75% improved. And then the last one, that the, the plant extract that's used for three to three days, only 29% of people were better. So this was fascinating, even though the oldest one on this list is the most effective one. We've been trying through the years to make something that's effective without causing all the redness and scabbing. And unfortunately, it appears still that the, the side effects are proportional to the effectiveness of getting rid of the precancers. Wow, interesting stuff. I just had a flashback to my grandmother because these are <laughs> these are the old people spots. Yes. That's what she used to call them. And I can remember looking at her hand in the nursing home and she had them all over the tops of her hands. Being a farm woman, she spent her life uh, in the sun, but it's sort of nostalgic thinking about old people spots. So our trivia question, as expected before we go to our break, is this, and we will go back in history to merry old England. The earliest cases of skin cancer ever diagnosed by a physician occurred in 1775 in London by Sir Percival Pott. The anatomic location of the squamous cell carcinomas were in a group of men. And it helped Sir Percival Pott discover the first environmental cause of his cancer. And in this case, it was not from sunshine. So what occupational group was afflicted with squamous cell carcinomas on one very specific part of the body. And as a hint, we see this group of people in the famous 1964 movie starring both Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews. But you're going to have to stay tuned for the end of the show to find out the answer, but we'll be back with more on skin cancer on Dr. Doctor here from Redeemer Radio after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for joining us here in the studios of Redeemer Radio. And now it's time to talk about a recipe for growing something. I don't mean in your garden. We're going to talk about how to grow skin cancer. Who wouldn't be interested in that? It's something that not many people set out to do, but many people are successful. Well, um, maybe people set out accident. to do it and don't even realize they're setting out to do it. <laughs> That's right. You got to know where you want to go. Otherwise, you're going to end up someplace else. Uh, we just watched The Lord of the Rings the other day. And Ooh. so everything, I've got a bunch of Lord of the Rings quotes playing through my head. So I'm sorry. Good. You use them yeah. as appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, we are, we're very lucky uh, in, in a lot of ways to have you here for us today on the show, but especially this month, which is Skin Cancer Awareness Month. So we wanted to take advantage of your expertise. You're a skin cancer surgeon. You operate on skin cancers all day long. Um, and so we wanted to take advantage of that and give our listeners an opportunity to hopefully dispel some common myths. And a lot of these questions we based off an article that you wrote for the Legatus magazine. Yes, recipe for skin cancer. You know, I find articles that just quote data and like you should change your behavior as not very compelling, not interesting. So I wanted to put something together a little more interesting. And you know, the first important piece of 
for growing a skin cancer is start by believing, you know, it can't happen to me. Because once you do that, it opens up a wide vista of opportunities for actually growing a skin cancer. <laughs> I love it. So just to clarify for our listeners, if something doesn't make sense during this interview or it's a little <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, it is intentionally so. So listen carefully. Yes, or rewind if you need to on the podcast. So kind of to start off, uh, Tom, how common is skin cancer? Skin cancer is so common that, at least among our white listeners, you have a one in three chance at some time in your lifetime you're going to have one. If we look at skin cancer related to all other cancers, non-skin cancers, there are five times as many skin cancers as all other cancers put together. Wow. So there's just over a million cancers reported each year by the American Cancer Society. There's over 5 million a year of skin cancers. Split a little over 3 million uh, basal cell carcinomas, almost 2 million squamous cell carcinomas, and uh, a couple hundred thousand melanomas. Those are the big three. So a good way to start off for growing your skin cancer would be live in denial that it couldn't happen to you because in all oh, yeah. reality, it's likely to happen And to if you, you live near the Denial River, you'll probably get a lot of sun too. <laughs> yeah, the nice. queen of denial was Cleopatra. Yes, she so. was. So she obviously <laughs> must have had skin cancer, although she probably had a dark type of skin. So another part of our recipe for, uh, for growing our skin cancer would be if I apply sunscreen, I want to use the very lowest number possible, and I'll just put it on once and leave it on for the week. Boy, that, that, that's great. And you know, all these things that we're talking about now are job security for me. <laughs> you know, when I was, uh, had kids a little bit younger, I used to joke, in fact, I did so once on a radio show as a, when I was a guest, that I have my kids stand outside of tanning salons and hold up signs that say, thanks for helping put us through college. <laughs> and then the, the patrons would come up and say, oh, do your parents own this place? No, my dad's a skin cancer surgeon. And that would kind of... I always wondered who <laughs> those kids were standing out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Tom, that might be nice for our listeners, a little bit of a myth buster or uh, a reaffirmation, as it were. So if I had to choose between sitting on the beach in Florida or going to an artificial tan salon, which is worse for me in terms of my ability to develop cancer? You know, it really Good depends question. how much time, what time of day it is. It's, it's a, a Catholic answer. It's a both and. You know, <laughs> Christ is both God and man. You know, we require both faith and works to be saved. Well... Both tanning beds and the sun cause skin cancer, Man. Uh, which is a, it's good that many states are passing laws preventing children from using tanning beds, at least without uh, parental consent. So with sunscreen, for instance, what does that SPF number mean on the sunscreen? Well, it's sun protection factor. It's how many times longer you can stay in the sun before burning. So if it would take you 15 minutes in the sun to burn and you had SPF 10 sunscreen, it would take you 150 minutes to get a burn. So, okay, so we got to do some math here. <laughs> I always thought it was sunscreen price factor because <laughs> the higher the number goes up, isn't this all sunscreen? I mean, what, what type of sunscreen do you recommend? Is there a brand? Is there a number? I mean, what, what sunscreen do you wear when you need it? What do I wear? Yeah. Uh, I get no no paybacks from this company. I happen to wear Neutrogena sunscreen, but there are many other good sunscreens. I think the, the key thing is the number. Now, the FDA, uh, even the American Academy of Dermatology, to which I belong, recommends getting at least an SPF 30, which means essentially you can stay out. You will only get about 3% of the cancer-causing rays coming through uh, compared to no sunscreen. There's a problem with that, though, and I've written to consumer reports every year after they do their sunscreen issue, and they keep ignoring who me, hasn't? but the data is what? I said, who hasn't? <laughs> You've written to them, too, and been ignored. <laughs> Join the club. We should start a club, yes. Uh, so they recommend just the 30, and even the FDA came out with a monograph recently saying that sunscreen numbers should be no higher than 50. They actually budged a little bit, and they went up to 60. I myself use 85 to 100, 120 on myself and my kids. Why? One simple fact. Multiple studies have been done with sunscreens to see how do people actually use them. And when you look at the thickness they put on, they're putting on one quarter to one half the thickness you need to get the number on the bottle. So the average person using a 30 is really getting about an 8 to 15. Mm. So I'm trying to prepare patients for actual use scenarios. Gotcha. And so if they're using 100, well, they're going to get 25 to 50 based on normal actual use practices. I don't know why they just don't change the thickness level at which they uh, judge sunscreens to be more based on actual use, but 
it's falling on deaf ears. Well, I know each of my kids are probably still suffering from PTSD from my wife pinning them down on a full-body Nelson and covering them with sunscreen. Oh, <laughs> oh, she could be a poster mom for some something we do, yeah. But uh, as painful as it is, it turned out to be good advice listening to you. But it needs to be thick. It can't just be a, a, ten, a thin layer. Uh, it's got to be thick, doesn't it? Uh, yes, and, and, and this is another myth, is that sunscreen is the sun protection thing. Well, there are many more things. To me, that's the last line of defense. So yeah. that's, a, that's another item in our recipe for developing skin cancer. So remove as much clothing and hats and glasses as possible and expose yourself to the greatest degree possible in the sun. Oh, absolutely. Especially down in Arizona or, or California or, or Texas or Florida. Yeah, much <laughs> better. Or on a Caribbean vacation. I know someone here has been to the Cayman Islands recently. So there's it's so silly when you look at the equatorial regions of the world. How do the natives dress? They oh. don't dress like retirees in Arizona and Florida dress. Oh, really? That's a good point. Yeah, they probably have a lot more sun protection. They have long flowing garments and they have darker skin to begin with that has a lower risk of skin cancer. So the more pigment you have in your skin, the less chance you will get skin cancer or sunburn. So that's actually that brings up another kind of question for people with dark skin yes. what are their chances for for fair skin people you said about one in three how about dark skin folks it, it, it depends again on how dark they are but the easier you tan it's very low rate i've operated on very few black or african-american patients in in my career and when i have it's usually in areas that you don't expect to see things it's usually on non-sun exposed areas gotcha so it, it might be the armpit the groin the palms the soles it's it's kind of weird so they have a rather low risk however in darker skin patients who have skin cancer it's usually <clears throat> found much later mm. And therefore, especially with melanoma or squamous cell cancer, more likely the horse has gotten out of the barn. Wow, that's scary. So I'm not worried about skin cancer. I'm just worried about vitamin D. So I'm going to go to Florida, and I'm just going to marinate myself in the sun. That's a good idea, right? That's a great <laughs> idea. It's more job security for me, actually. You know, the whole vitamin D thing, when it came out, it's like, oh, it reduces risk of cancer. It reduces risk of this autoimmune disease. It does all these things. And the more studies that come out the more it looks like there probably is no difference. It's like with most vitamins, there's not a difference unless you're in a true deficiency state. Well, you, you've quoted before that article about the surfers, right? And yes, from Hawaii. D. An average of 29 hours of Hawaiian sun a week. And yet, half of them, based on one measure, if they were under 30 nanomoles per milliliter of um, vitamin D in their blood, we're vitamin D deficient. In other words, the sun can't give you all the vitamin D you get, especially the darker your skin is. Black people can't get all their vitamin D from the sun because of their pigment. Wow. Interesting. And so, so if, uh, if I find something on my skin that's not healing, uh, a good idea would be just to forget it and don't think about it because it'll go away eventually, right? That sounds like a lot of my patients, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's truly amazing what some people have the ability to ignore for time. Yes, yes, please ignore it. Don't get it treated until it's at least an inch in diameter. Oh, my goodness. And then if you wear a hat, uh, use a visor or a baseball hat and stay away from those silly hats with wide rims, right? Right, because it'll make you look like a dork, just like <laughs> I look when I wear my wear my hat like that. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, so many people think that that baseball hat with just that brim is going to protect so much. It protects this little V-shaped area of your forehead. Yeah. And that's about it. So you really need the brim going all the way around if you want to protect yourself. Do you wear one of the beaver tail neck um, coverings that looks uh, so cool? I have not gone that cool yet. <laughs> he does my, my, His wife has a sign that she holds up that says, I'm sorry, my husband's a dermatologist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I used to have one of those for running, but no, I just use sunscreen if so, I Tom, run. So Tom, if somebody played a trick on you and they said, you're about to meet a patient, they have a skin cancer, you get one shot to find it, where would you look? Ooh, I like that question. That is a good one. Uh, is it a man or a woman? Oh, I didn't think about that. Well, I only take care of women, so let's say women. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a woman, I'd look on her central face. 30% of all basal cell cancers are on the nose. So every oh, wow. year in the United States, there are about 1 million basal cell carcinomas on people's noses. So face for the woman, where would you look on a man? Well, it's going to be the same area, but uh, if they are non-hair-bearing on their scalp, mm. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna look there. Gotcha. Because if you think about it, if they're not wearing a hat, that is getting direct sun instead of sun at a slanted angle. Right. So the more direct sun you get, the, the yeah, waves. That's an interesting physics. You know, the same thing happens with pregnant women and round bellies. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's an interesting suntan, right? Tell me more. <laughs> they will sunburn their stomach when oh, they have a round stomach. Yes. Doing things they've always done and never sunburned and not understand what happened. But it's the physics of the round <laughs> instead of the flat. Uh, so it's And then pregnancy makes you sun sensitive as well. See, where else could you have insights like this than on Dr. Doctor? And in case you're thinking about turning away, don't. Don't. But we'll be right back after this break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, recorded at the studios of Redeemer Radio. We are the official radio show and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, and we are here today celebrating, maybe not the right word, uh, (laughs) participating in Skin Cancer Awareness Month with our resident dermatologist, you should get one if you don't have one, Dr. Tom McGovern. (laughs) A prophet in his own land. (laughs) But we appreciate him. That's this, and you know this is your month, Tom, so you can bask in it. Yeah, um, oh, <laughs> intended. Very nicely done. So we there's there's a lot of stuff we could talk about here, and so one of the things, kind of just to get back to some of the medical stuff too, skin cancer. If you're going to get cancer, thank goodness it's skin cancer, right? It can't kill you. What what types of skin? That's cancer? That's another thing to believe. Believe it can't kill you. It really, it only kills other people. <laughs> so you know, with with basal cell carcinoma, there's probably very few people who die of it. It's probably in the hundreds each year. I do have one person right now who's at the, probably the end of his life. He's not very old. uh, And he has a metastatic basal cell carcinoma. That happens about one in 30 to 50,000 cases. It's that rare. Uh, Squamous cell carcinoma, there's probably nine or 10,000 people a year who die of that. That one is the most rapidly growing of the three types. The one... um, that's most associated with chronic sun exposure to the same area over and over. So the top of the head of bald men is a really high-risk area for this kind of cancer. And then about 10,000 people a year die of melanoma. That's the one, the funny-looking mole with the, you know, browns and blacks and whites and reds in it. Wow. And so there there are definitely skin cancers that can kill you. Oh, yes. Um, that is one of the questions that I get from a lot of people is how worried should we be? Yeah, it's like that one episode of um, of uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Remember the scene where he's on a date with a dermatologist and somebody, and he's making jokes about her being a pimple popper and all this stuff. And this guy comes up, oh, Dr. So-and-so, I wanted to thank you for saving my life. And then... Seinfeld goes, oh, I forgot, skin cancer. <laughs> you know, So dermatologists can make a difference in people's lives. Well, and, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask about, too, is with melanoma especially, how much of that is sun-related versus just bad luck? It looks like about 90% of melanomas are caused by sun damage. And we know that because the ultraviolet B light, so there's three main types of ultraviolet light. We think of black light or ultraviolet A light. Well, there's one that's a wavelength that's a little bit um, shorter. And ultraviolet B is what causes the burns. And it also causes the skin cancer. But we know that ultraviolet B, as well as ultraviolet A, cause specific changes in the DNA in your pigment-making cells. And these are found in at least 90% of melanomas. Wow. And so a little bit of myth-busting, Tom. So melanoma happens or doesn't happen in the area where the sun exposure happened? Are they related or unrelated? It, it, uh, it typically is related, and it's more related to intermittent sun exposure, otherwise, you know, once in a while sun exposure, than chronic repeated beating and beating in the same area of sun. And does the damage come when there's the burn? So in other words, if I'm applying sunscreen liberally the way that it's uh, intended, and I spend hours and hours in the sun, but I don't burn, have I still damaged skin and the DNA? Is it still at risk? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, And so people sometimes, and there's studies suggesting that people get a false sense of security with sunscreen and spend way too much time out in the sun with it. They don't reapply every two to four hours. So better to not burn, but you're still exposing yourself to risk. Correct. Now, especially with sunscreen, I get a question a lot, Karen, for little kids is what should we do with babies? Because many sunscreens will say on them, don't apply on babies. They, They say that because Children under six months old should never be um, put in the way of direct sunlight. Okay. They should always be shaded from it. 
So the the issue is not the the sunscreen's going to hurt the baby. It's, it's the right. sun. Why is your baby needing sunscreen? Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Good job, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've seen similar warnings on cigarettes as well. You know, <laughs> six months. Yeah. You know, they have to be at least six months. You know. <laughs> boom. But you know, one of the things with sun exposure is the accumulation, right? It mm-hmm. builds up over your life. And I've had so many people tell me I've kind of given up because I was out so much as a kid. Exactly. You know, the damage working, is already done. The damage so. is done, you know, that type of thing. Is there is there a myth there that we can dispel? It's a huge myth. And initially, it was a true myth. In other words, the original data for this stems back to the 70s, and the data was interpreted wrong. Wow. Well, since then, it's been reinterpreted so that Basically, by the age of 18, you've gotten 23% of your lifetime sun exposure as an average American. And to break it down really simply, if you take an 80-year lifespan and break it into 20-year quarters, you get about a quarter of your lifetime sun exposure in each of those 20-year periods, from 0 to 20, from 20 to 40, from 40 to 60, from 60 to 80. Wow. So even though you might have been out in the sun a lot as a kid, whenever you recognize that you need to prevent skin cancer, it's not too late. No, no, it, it's not. In fact, in studies have shown that men who are over 40, the sun that they get contributes to the greatest amount of skin cancer, you know, per ultraviolet unit. Wow. So, so it, it gets even more risky potentially as you get older. Well, because oftentimes what happens is an individual cell to turn into a skin cancer needs multiple times that it's damaged. Mm. So the first episode of damage is going to just make it more fertile. So the older we get, the more fertile cells we have, and then boom, another piece of damage to another part of the DNA of a cell, and then it takes off growing from the rest. Wow. So, Tom, maybe a little more uh, in the in the way of myth-busting. Uh, if we uh, So I do all the right things. I cover with my sunscreen mm-hmm. uh, as I get older. Um, what's happening to skin cancer rates uh, in America, you know, for the last several decades, they've been increasing five to seven percent a year, despite doing all the right things. Despite public awareness, despite doing all the right things, it's it's all related to behavior. So that's not an environmental phenomenon necessarily. That's a human no, behavior. It's phenomenon. a human behavior phenomenon. Yeah, we're flocking to Florida and to Arizona and Texas. Yes, uh, exactly. Just, and we, despite your warnings, our listeners just don't do the right things. Well, Tom, one of the questions I had is okay, I'm a listener at home, and I've got a weird-looking mole. How do I know if it's skin cancer? Well, you don't because you're not experienced looking at it. What, what I tell people and what, you know, the American Cancer Society, American Academy of Dermatology, you know, simple things to look at. The first rule I use is, do you have something on your skin that looks different than anything else on your skin? Because most patients will have what we call a signature mole. Their moles have a certain pattern all over the body. So if you're looking at a patient that's coming in and they have a funny mole, but they have these same funny moles all over, that's just the way they make moles. But if they have a mole that looks different than their other moles, come in. So that's, that's a very simple rule of thumb. That's a, you know, it's not a measurement. It's not a series of colors. It's just pattern recognition, which is a lot of what we do in dermatology. The second thing would be, you know, they talk about the A, B, C, D, E's of melanoma. A, is it asymmetrical? Does one half not look like the other? B, is the border irregular? Is there a l- like a little piece sticking out like a spear or is it a little notched or wobbly? C, colors. Are there multiple colors, especially colors that are not symmetrical? You know, if it looks like a bullseye, a lot of people make moles that look that way. But if it's there's no seeming pattern to it, that's concerning. They've used D, diameter, you know, either diameter growing or diameter bigger than a pencil eraser, which is six millimeters. And and then they've added an E for evolving or elevation. But the problem is all moles go through a life cycle. Mm. When you're born, only uh, when people are born, only about 1% have a mole on their body. So they almost all come after birth. And then when the mole first appears, it's flat and dark. As the cells of the mole mature later on in childhood and into the teens, it becomes raised and stays dark. Then in the late teens and 20s, it will usually start to lose color from the outside in. So it starts to look like a bullseye, and the last place there's color is right in the middle. Then you've got these, you know, flesh-colored moles, which over time will often flatten out and disappear into the skin. So all moles are changing. It's the type of change that we're concerned about. Wow. So the 
I guess the take-home message, I mean, this is complicated stuff if you're looking at one mole on your body. Taking advantage of a physician to help look right. at the different moles, somebody who's looked at a million moles, who needs a skin check and how often? Well, it's funny you'd say that, Andrew. I was just thinking about my practice. It's probably not the same because you're a real doctor and I'm just an obstetrician. It's <laughs> <laughs> <But if a laughs> even more real than a dermatologist. Uh, when, a, when a patient says to me, is this mole something to be worried about? I have this little button on my desk and I press it and they're shunted to Dr. McGovern's office. <laughs> but, it, but in reality, I think for listening healthcare providers, you know, if something is concerning enough that it gets brought to my attention, I think somebody like you needs to look at it and probably biopsy it. How often do you as a dermatologist look at, at a skin thing and choose not to biopsy versus the biopsy? That's a good question. Uh, because it's of interest to also insurance companies because they don't want to see... Unnecessary biopsies, right? Right. Yeah. And, and patients don't want to have an unnecessary scar. There's a, a really important lesson I learned just from seeing patients. I didn't see it in any book. And that was, if, a pa- if you can tell a patient thinks that this spot is really different than the rest, even though when you're looking at it, you think it looks stone cold normal, they have now done studies that show that more than you would expect, that lesion turns out to have something wrong with it. Mm. So I have learned that if a patient is that worried about a spot, I would biopsy it. Interesting. When in doubt, biopsy. Right. And it's not just, you know, you know, cover my bottom type of thing. It's because there is real data to back this up. They just sense there's something wow. wrong with it. Uh, now, Tom, if we were looking at two individuals, both sort of the same skin color, but one person has moles everywhere yes. and the other person has no moles, uh, is the person with moles more likely to develop a skin cancer? Absolutely. Uh, that has been shown uh, pretty conclusively. So those patients should be a little more suspicious and a little more vigilant. Right. And it's interesting. The vast majority of melanomas just start on their own. They don't start from an existing mole. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe 20% start in an existing mole, about 80%. It's, it's funny, as I've gone through my training, it's like that number keeps going higher and higher of melanomas just starting from scratch. Wow. And now you asked what, was, what patient needs to have a skin cancer examination. And it's not everybody. Uh, if your parents had skin cancer, you know, when you become an adult, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have looked at once. If you've never had a skin cancer, but you have a non-healing sore that lasts longer than a month, you should be checked. Uh, but there is no blanket rule until you've had a skin cancer, then those patients should be seen once a year for life. I, I get that question a lot from folks because especially as a family doctor, I get to see patients frequently, the, the folks that I see, and usually even healthy patients we try and see once a year kind of for a, a wellness exam. And part of that, I ask them about moles and try and look at moles they're concerned about. One question I get a lot is, when do I need to go see a dermatologist for a skin check that you hear some people do? And it sounds it's mostly based on history. It, it is based on history. And if you as a family doctor think they've got a lot of things here that just don't look right. Yeah. It, I mean, that's that's a good reason, too. But that's why the United States um, Preventive Medicine Task Force, or the USPSTF, doesn't recommend blanket skin cancer screening because it hasn't been shown in huge populations to make a difference. And we hope to make a difference in your life by giving you the answer to the trivia question coming up here after the break on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio with the answer to the medical trivia question. And listeners, please pull over if you're driving because we don't want to cause an accident because <laughs> we know that you're, you're anxiously awaiting. But just to recap the question, because it's a complicated one, early skin cancers um, were diagnosed by a physician. The earliest was in 1775 by Sir Percival Pott. Um, the anatomic location of squamous cell carcinomas in this group of men helped him discover the first environmental cause of cancer. Uh, and in this case, it wasn't from sunshine. So the trivia question is, what occupational group was susceptible? Take it away, Dr. McGovern. Oh, that, that film that was part of the hint, Mary Poppins. Remember where Dick Van Dyke is dancing at the end with the chimney sweeps. Mm. It was in the chimney sweeps. And Sir Percival Pott 
saw a number of them with cancer on their scrotums. And it was squamous cell carcinoma, and he figured it out that it was from some of the components of the soot, the soot from burning the coal uh, in a lot of the chimneys. Holy cow. So direct contact with the soot? Well, it eventually would leach through, probably through sweat, uh, get through some of the clothing, or get just you know, down their arms, down their necks, you know, down their pants. I don't know how tight their belts were or what they wore back then, but, and it would just concentrate in the, in the folds of the scrotum and lead to squamous cell carcinoma. I guess that's a pattern you'd recognize after a couple of them. This is weird. Yeah, this, the, what's going on here? And then you find <laughs> out that they're all chimney sweeps. I mean, it's, you know, the next advance in medicine back uh, 250 years ago almost. So if our listeners are driving along thinking about a job change because they're unhappy at work, it could be worse. It could be worse. <laughs> you could be crawling down the chimneys and sweeping them. But nobody ever brings up whether or not Santa Claus had this problem. That's true. That should be a future <laughs> trivia question, I yeah, think. Yeah, f- future show. We won't do that now. <laughs> well, actually, that brings up a good point about non-sun causes of skin cancer. Yes. Are there other common ones that we should be aware of? Uh, yes, it's uh, fascinating. I've num- operated on a number of scars that turned into skin cancer, specifically vaccination scars. Wow. So people that got the smallpox scar, you know, on their on their deltoid shoulder or their arm, uh, those have turned into them. Childhood scars. And when you look at somebody who's an adult, childhood scars have a different color when they're decades old. They're usually kind of this yellowish hue to them. And so I've seen cancers occur in those. Uh, Squamous cell carcinomas can occur in areas where there's been chronic heat exposure, like people that for years are putting a a heating pad on something. Uh, They can get it. Uh, Welders. Welding arcs have a really intense ultraviolet light in it. So I've operated on a number of uh, welders who have gotten that, who either didn't wear a mask or where their mask didn't cover. Well, Tom, is there any connection to skin cancers and tattooing of the skin? Um, no, there's, there's no known relationship between those things. There is, you know, with tattoos and causing infections, Hmm. Uh, warts. And I have removed skin cancers in tattoos and had to try to reshape the tattoo when I put it together so it <laughs> looks somewhat well, that's reasonable. artistry right there. Yes, indeed. But that'd be indirect, not direct. That, right? that, so was, that was indirect, yes. Oh, fascinating. So, but the answer, I guess the question uh, a lot of listeners might have is, uh, so they're sold and you've convinced them that they need to bathe in sunscreen. They do everything right. They could still get a skin cancer, right? Right. And they need to be treated. So many skin cancers that, like I mentioned earlier, if they're on the very surface of the skin, they can be treated with certain creams. If they're deeper down, especially if they're not on a cosmetically important area of the body, we do scrape and burn, which is the you know, the lay term for electrodesiccation and curatage. Most of these cancers, not the melanomas, but the squamous cell and basal cell carcinomas are kind of mushy. And so you get this little instrument that's shaped like a, a melon baller. And it's slightly sharp. And if you pull it across the skin, the cancer cells just kind of shell out, almost like a peanut from a shell. And you scrape across several times. You stop the bleeding underneath. And for small cancers on non-cosmetic areas of the body, that has a 90 to 95% cure rate. Mm. Uh, of course, there are some, can- some that have to be cut out. And I spend my days doing something called Mohs micrographic surgery. It's named after a guy named Frederick Mose who invented it, and it's spelled M-O-H-S. A lot of people think I do mole surgery, you know, like, <laughs> like the brown moles we have in our body. And in, in that, uh, I'm a pathologist who cuts or a surgeon who reads microscope slides. So someone comes in, and this, this is for not all skin cancers, not most skin cancers, but it's for ones that have been treated before and come back, ones that are large, One's under the microscope that have really little microscopic strands of cancer cells. You're not sure how big it is. Or one's on cosmetically sensitive areas of the body. So most of the surgery I do is nose, lips, uh, eyelids, ears, scalp. And I cut it out. I take the tissue, mark it with different colors of ink, cut it in pieces, draw a map, give it to my uh, lab histotechs, and they make me microscope slides. I look at the microscope slides. If there's cancer at the edge or bottom, I know exactly where it is on the patient bring them back in the room, cut out more, they bring it back in, and when it's all gone, then I put them back together. So that's, that's the, 
you know, the high test way to, to treat skin cancer, but only certain ones. And then there are some which are treated with radiation. Sometimes uh, a squamous cell cancer particularly uh, gets out of the barn or it's in a, a really weak patient who doesn't want to go through surgery. And uh, especially for squamous cell cancer, uh, radiation is a really uh, good option. Hmm. It's interesting. Andrew, you see patients from all ages, genders, walks of life. And it's easy. I know in the popular press, we get focused on, you know, ovarian cancer because of maybe a movie star. Uh, and certainly breast cancer deserves a lot of attention and respect. But it, if, if a patient is just thinking about the things that pose them the greatest risk, statistically, it's certainly not ovarian cancer. Yeah. They're much more likely in the cancer realm to have something wrong with their skin, aren't they? Oh, 100%. So I think it's, it's nice that people have dedicated a month to skin cancer because it is something that needs more awareness. So many people don't even think of it, but they will fall victim to it at some point. Right. And all over the country uh, during the month of May, dermatologists are holding free skin cancer screenings, as, as our practice will be again. Man, that's wonderful. It, it, it's a good thing for patients that uh, don't have as good of insurance. Uh, a lot of them happen to come in on those days and, and find things. But, you know, this has been a recurring theme with a lot of our shows. There's a lot of high-tech advice and new studies and things. But when it boils down, there's some good commonsensical advice for overall health. Uh, based on today's discussion, we should add to that list, limit your exposure to the sun, wear sunscreen, uh, wear a high SPF, and that doesn't stand for cost. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there's clothing. You know, it has a UPF on it, um, ultraviolet protection factor. Are you familiar with that? I, I am. It's kind of a, a newer idea, I guess, I've or I've only heard of it recently. I thought it was a way just to make, uh, you know, fishing shirts more expensive. That's what I kind of thought, too. I said, uh, I, couldn't I just wear two of the other ones? Well, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, a white T-shirt offers you an SPF of about three or four. Wow. wow. So you can get sunburn and skin cancer through T-shirts. A blue T-shirt is an SPF of about 11 or 12. So it's better. And when you're looking at the UPF factor of clothing, that is a worst case scenario. That is if the ultraviolet rays are directly perpendicular. Whereas with a sunscreen, that number is a best case scenario. Wow. Um, well, Tom, this month will house uh, Mother's Day, uh, and so we need to do a little bit of myth-busting for every mother out there. Uh, true or false, it's impossible to sunburn when it's shady outside. Oh, you can easily sunburn when it's shady. So. That's going to make mothers so happy to hear <laughs> a dermatologist say, see, I told you, just because it's cloudy, you can still sunburn. Oh, certainly. You well, certainly can. You never have to get a sunburn to get a skin cancer. Man. And why, why do some people, you know, or I guess one question with a sunburn, what's the best treatment for a sunburn? I get that question all the time. Well, a sunburn, you know, is the result of cells dying. So you're not going to bring those cells back to life, and the body's going to have an inflammatory reaction to that. So really, you want to try to reduce the effects of that inflammation. So one of the best things that you can do is, first of all, cool the skin. Uh, so, you know, ice-cold compresses are something that I'd use. I recommend don't do what my uh, dad used to do and have me put vinegar on it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, a, a cold, damp towel on your skin is a good thing. Uh, and then, you know, you can use a moisturizer. And yes, believe it or not, natural aloe vera does have anti-inflammatory chemicals in it. So that is a good thing you can put on. Uh, my go-to anti-inflammatory is ibuprofen. Uh, uh, and you know, they say, well, should I drink water? Actually, you should, because if you have broad areas of sunburn, your body is evaporating large amounts of uh, fluid. Uh, if, you have a, if you have a blister, um, you know, it, I will tell patients, contrary to the American Academy of Dermatology, it's okay to take a sterile needle and pop the blister, but don't shave the blister off because it's there as a, a protection to the body. So, and then really protect yourself. You don't want sunburn on top of sunburn because it hurts. Uh, well, we've learned a lot. But as usual, the best health advice is not always the most complicated. Uh, so we've added our list of things that listeners need to be careful about, and that is sun exposure. I think we've busted, if you will, a lot of sun myths and skin cancer myths. This is going to change the way I talk to patients. I'm going to tell even more people to go see a dermatologist. You know, well, one thing that you had asked me about, Andrew, that I, I did some more research on is why do some people tan and some mm. people freckle? Oh, and yeah. It's because redheads who freckle, they have 
a problem in one of their genes that makes pigment. So you can make three different colors of pigment, kind of a yellowish brown or a yellowish red one, a brown one, and a black one. Well, fair-skinned people can't make the brown or black. They can only make the yellowish red one. They're the ones who freckle. They're the ones who burn. They, if they go to a tanning bed, they're never going to tan. They're just going to make freckles. More freckles. So they yes. are more susceptible, more at risk. Absolutely. For As one of my Irish priest patients told me when I was training in my fellowship, the Irish are God's gift to dermatology. <laughs> <laughs> Those who have much will be given more. <laughs> right? And much is expected of them. Tom, if, if everybody <laughs> listens to this show... And we and cure do, skin cancer, right? <laughs> skin cancer's gone. Uh, you're out of a job. What do you do? What do I do? I asked my wife to see what else she can put on my honeydew list. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of dermatology I can take care of besides skin cancer. Unfortunately, skin cancer is not going to go the way of the dodo bird anytime soon, uh, especially with human behavior such as it is. I would refer patients to two websites, the American Academy of Dermatology, that's aad.org, and skincancer.org. Thank you all for putting up with three dads who are not telling too many dad jokes today on this episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week as well for your next appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing challenging ethics, uh, especially those decisions in daily medical practice with ethicist Elliot Bedford. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. Don't miss your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.